Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, a lot of people have been coming and going, and today's my first Sunday back after uh, three Sundays away. So uh, lovely to be back, and lovely to be back in uh, a very beautiful uh, re-renovated church. Just to, to put you at ease, in case you're thinking it still looks a bit jumbled and chaotic here at the front, it, it does. Um, the, the little platform on which I'm standing is going to be carpeted during the week. And the, the speakers that you see standing here are temporary this week because uh, we weren't able to get our audiovisual system fully integrated for today. And I think this uh, projector stand will go soon. So everything will look a bit, a bit tidier and a bit more complete by next Sunday. Uh, but it's, it's just lovely to be back in, in, a, in a refurbished church uh, and to be back together again. Since I came to Kirkpatrick Memorial in 2003, um, it's ended up being part of my journey to minister to a lot of people who are in the property market, uh, either first-time buyers or people who are maybe moving from their first home uh, to another home. So I've been aware this last nine years nearly uh, of the the place that the mortgage has in, in many of our lives. In the first year uh, I was here, I suppose the thing I was conscious of the first five or so years is how the the mortgages people were taking on were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as the the housing market was in boom at that stage. In the last maybe four years, uh, that trend, as you know, has reversed, uh, and that's left people with different problems. The the issue of negative equity uh, has raised its head. So one way or another, uh, mortgages have played a a very important uh, part in many of our lives. They've dominated the landscape of uh, many people in East Belfast recently. Whether you're a mortgage holder or not, I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a huge debt outstanding. Uh, You're opening the post and there's a letter there from the, the bank manager and she's inviting you to come in and to meet with her the next Monday morning uh, to discuss your outstanding liability is the way she's put it. So you, you go to the appointment on the Monday. Uh, she makes sure that somebody gives you a cup of coffee uh, and then the conversation. Listen, she says, about the mortgage, we've decided to cancel it. Your obligation to us is over. You're free to go. Goodbye. Goodbye. Can you imagine that feeling? A mortgageless life? That incredible sense that uh, that this burden that you've been carrying for years is is gone. Uh, A a real sense of freedom uh, and a future. Well, that's what we're asking for in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We read from Matthew chapter 18, but as you know, we're following a series in the Lord's Prayer. So turn with me, uh, just and we'll look at it together. Page 970, if you're using our Bibles in the pew, Matthew chapter 6. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer. We've, We've noticed that it has six different petitions or requests, and this week we're hitting number five. You see it there in chapter 6, verse 12. It says, forgive us our debts as we also 
have forgiven our debtors. There are different ways to learn the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes we use the word sins in there or transgressions. Uh, In the NIV, it happens to be the word debt. The variety of words that we use shows us that the, the, the word in the Greek that underlies all our translations probably has quite a broad meaning because people are translating it in different ways. So the word here in Matthew's gospel, interestingly, it's not a religious term. It's a commercial term. In the narrow sense, it means a financial debt. It means a mortgage. And that's why I've started talking in those terms William Barclay says it, it's a pretty broad thing, actually. He says it means it's something which is owed, something which is due, something which is a duty or an obligation to give or to pay. So it's a debt in the widest sense. So Jesus is talking here about a debt being cancelled, and the word that's translated forgive isn't a religious word either. So it turns out that it's more more of a commercial word, and it's it's... As we've already been saying, it's the word to cancel a debt, to wipe the slate clean, to put a a line through a, a customer's account and say that it's settled. So the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer means something like this. Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Delete from the record every failure of duty to you, And every failure of duty to other people. Cancel the debt that we owe you and each other. Matthew chapter 18, the passage that we read, just reinforces what we're saying here. Because Jesus uses the parable to to pick up on on the language and the imagery of a financial debt. Peter's asked him not about mortgages or about debts. He's asked him about forgiveness. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? And that's always the question we ask, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a forgiving kind of person. Uh, I want to forgive, but there'll come a point when I'll stop. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive a person? And Jesus' story here about the servant who's been forgiven a million pound mortgage, but then goes and chases someone for a fiver speaks in a very profound way to this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm going to pause here for a second because it's possible that I've lost you already. Um, you, You may be saying to yourself, well, this isn't really scratching where I itch. Christoph, I don't feel that I owe God any debt. If God exists at all, then I prefer to conceive of him as a loving, merciful being. Uh, Along with most people in the postmodern society of which I'm a part, I don't believe that I owe God anything, that I need to be forgiven. This doesn't sound like a prayer that I need to be praying with any urgency. It's very possible that that some of us or, or many of us or, or most of us feel that way. Let, let's, let's think about that for a second. D- does this prayer have any validity for us? 
Let's think whether we might, after all, owe a debt to the living God. Every single one of us owes God obedience because he is our creator. He's the one who made us, who gave us life. And not to trust God, not to obey him, is to find ourselves in debt to him. In fact, we're in debt for for all of our failures to obey. And, And once you begin to recognize that, and when you see how many times we fail, you realize what a what a horrendous debt is accumulating day by day. German theologian Helmut Thielicke put it like this. He said, all of us have a great mortgage on our lives. Let's take a, a moment to, to run a diagnostic on our lives, to have a look to see how our lives shape up with, with what God has called us to and what he requires of us. I say we'll take a, a brief look because to look any longer, to be honest, would crush us. To feel the weight of the mortgage in our lives, we might begin by looking at the Ten Commandments. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 78. We studied the Ten Commandments uh, last year in our church's life, in the last church year. So, um, of course, this is all very fresh to us all. None of you have forgotten any of it. And as the preacher, I certainly haven't. Well, um, let's, look, let's look here. You shall have no other gods before me, it says in verse 3, First Commandment. Nothing else is ever going to replace me at the top of your lives. You won't make for yourselves an idol, second commandment. You're not going to choose gods of your own making. You're not going to allow wealth or success, your career, to, to dominate your life, to my exclusion. Reading on, honor your father and mother, You won't steal ever. You won't bear false testimony against your neighbor. You'll never you'll never lie or or never misrepresent anybody. I, I could go on, but I don't really want to. Because even a quick look at the Ten Commandments shows me that I'm undone, that I don't keep God's law, even even just this 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 summary of God's law. Turn with me to Job 31, page 532. We're in a very different kind of a context. In the commandments you read, a list of of laws. In in Job 31, if you know the story of Job, he suffers. He, he, He protests his innocence before God in this passage. Um, And whenever I read the claims that Job is able to make, regardless of whether these claims are genuine or not, the very things that he talks about just show me that I'm missing the mark. Let me point out a few things here. Job chapter 1, page 500, sorry, Job chapter 31, page 532, verse 1, 
I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Verse 5. If I've walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit. Verse 16. If I've denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. Verse 19. If I've seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep. Verse 24. If I've put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. Job says he hasn't done any of these things. And when I read his list, I think, I've done those all. I am not innocent before God. And together we have failed to keep God's law. We're in God's debt. Very quickly, one last diagnostic passage. Um, Let's go to the early part of the Lord's Prayer. So it's actually just before, or sorry, the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. So page 969. This is just the chapter before where we come to the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. In verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anger. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Folks, let's, let's stop. Isn't it just overwhelming The sense that we get when we allow the spotlight of God's word to fall honestly on our lives. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or whether it's Job or whether it's the Sermon on the Mount. There's a stark reality here and it's that we we have failed. We're in debt to God and it's a mammoth debt that I owe. I'm mortgaged up to the hilt and beyond. People talk about negative equity. I'm not even in that position. I'm all debt and no equity. Folks, it's now when we've begun to to establish our indebtedness to God that this wonderful petition just comes alive. Our Father, who art in heaven, forgive us our debts. Cancel them. Set us free. 
And the wonderful news is that he does. He does just that. He cancels our debts. The Bible's full of verses that talk about the forgiving God. Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 103, David said of God's mercy, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's incredible. It's too good to be true, but it is true because he forgives the huge debt that we have before him. When I invited you to imagine at the start of our service the bank manager inviting you in to tell you that your mortgage had been cancelled, you immediately thought, yeah, that would be great. Wishful thinking. It's not how the world works. The system doesn't allow it. What about justice? We, we owe the debt. It, it has to be paid. It's crazy, the very thought of it. And yet that's what we ask in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. We walk in before the living God and we say, forgive us our debts. And he does. If you're visiting with us here today, or if you're someone who's not too sure yet uh, what it is really to, to know the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, then let me tell you, we're right at the heart of it here. This is what Christianity all, is all about. This is, is why we talk about it as good news. This is the gospel. In his letter to some Christians in Colossae, Paul uses the language of the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, and he gives us a a powerful graphic image. He says, think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old debt cancelled, and nailed to Christ's cross. What an incredibly liberating picture. That list of all those failures, that, that stuff that we allowed ourselves to dwell on for just a few moments, that, that list of all my failures nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ as dead as he was in his own death. That titanic mortgage taken away. By his blood, Jesus has paid for it. He's paid the debt. It's done And it's this Jesus, the one who died on the cross for us, who now teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven the debts others have to us. He teaches us to pray it because he is the one who makes it possible with his own blood. Folks, I wonder if we know this. And I'm talking to people who've been in the church all their lives, 50, 60, 80, 90 years. Do we know this? 
Do we live forgiven lives? Are our hearts light and full of joy that despite all the ways in which we muck up and all the ways we're going to muck up in the future, we are forgiven? It's gone. It's nailed up there. Bang! I think we struggle to live it. We've been thinking about the glorious reality that in Jesus Christ, God forgives our debt. The huge debt that we owe. But notice what Jesus actually says in his prayer. Teaches us to pray. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Somehow, and the commentators and the theologians write quite a lot about this, somehow Jesus relates us receiving God's forgiveness to us giving forgiveness to others around us. My own sense is that he's saying, or this means, if I'm not willing to forgive others, then I'm not truly receiving God's forgiveness myself. I might be asking God to excuse me, to overlook things, but I'm not asking him to forgive me. Let me elaborate on that for just a second. Any act of forgiveness is a, is a dynamic between three realities, justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is when God gives me what I deserve. Mercy is when he doesn't give me what I deserve. And grace is what he grants me when he gives me good things that I don't deserve. Justice, mercy, and grace. What am I doing whenever I refuse to forgive someone? I'm demanding justice. I'm saying you've hurt me and you must be punished. I'm denying that person mercy. I'm saying you must pay. I'm certainly not extending that person any grace. I'm saying I want you to continue to experience misery until you've paid me back. So whenever I say, Father, forgive me my sins... Dispense with your justice, but give me your mercy and grace. And at the same time, turn to, to the one who sinned against me and said, I will have justice. There will be no mercy and grace for you. Friends, do you see now why it's impossible? To pray sincerely for God's forgiveness and yet not to forgive those who sin against us. 
How could a human heart with any integrity move in those two opposing directions? If we pray God's forgiveness and even expect and believe that we're receiving it, and yet at the same time don't forgive other people, aren't we exactly in the position of that first servant in Jesus' parable? We've been forgiven the million-pound debt, and we're still chasing our neighbor for a fiver. John Stott summarizes uh, Jesus' parable, but also this petition in his prayer. He says, God forgives only the penitent. And one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Friends, it's likely that the extent to which we're receiving God's forgiveness is the extent to which we're forgiving people ourselves. It's a costly thing to really forgive. And more costly the deeper the hurt that's been experienced. And it can take time, I think, to, to let go of the sins of others against us. But we must do it. Uh, Lewis Smedes is a, an American theologian, and he, he's famous for writing on the subject of forgiveness. And he once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. Isn't that wonderful? To set a prisoner free. But he goes on. He says that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner is yourself. Forgiveness is costly. Unforgiveness, more costly still. Our Father, who art in heaven, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. As you know, I normally pray at the end of a sermon, or certainly often do that, inviting God to help us live out what he's just spoken to us. This morning I thought I'd like to finish by by inviting each one of us to, to enter into uh, the prayer of Jesus, to, to receive God's forgiveness ourselves and to, to pass it on. It might help you to close your eyes as we do this together, but it won't, strictly speaking, be a prayer. It'll be a prayerful uh, mind. So let's, let's do that. Let's gather ourselves as though praying. I want you in the, in the quiet of your own hearts to, to picture the person that you're having trouble forgiving just now. It might be a friend, a member of your family. It might be your spouse or someone in church. I want you to tell God their name. 
Tell God exactly what this person did to you. And be honest, specifically at bare, he sees it all anyway. Now tell the Father what you would like to see happen to this person. Don't hide it because he knows your heart already. Tell him if you want to see this person punished or shamed or hurt as you were hurt. And now imagine that you're standing before the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where he gave his life for you. He invites you to come towards him. What do you want to say to him? Do you want to say more about the person who has hurt you? To go back over the catalogue of their failings and how they've wronged you? Or do you find yourself sorry for all the ways in which you've caused the suffering of Jesus? And now in your mind's eye, withdraw a little from the cross to find that person who's hurt you. Invite them to come with you to the foot of the cross. Looking at Jesus and pointing to that person beside you, as an act of your will, say, Jesus, forgive this person the way you've forgiven me and help me to forgive them too. And then hear Jesus speak to you. I will forgive them, he says. Well done. You're never more like me and my Father than when you forgive. Go in peace. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Let's keep our seats and sing it together 
uh, the stewards will lift the offering as we do.